0: Hello, I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Jarvis, and welcome to The Hepcast, the podcast shining a light on the real-life stories behind the fight against Hepatitis C, a disease that affects 71 million people worldwide. In this fourth episode, we'll look at prevention. With no vaccine for Hepatitis C, the focus is placed on reducing the risk of exposure to the virus, and I'm joined by three inspirational women from around the world from Spain to Iceland to Canada, to explore current practices in Hep C prevention with a particular focus on high-risk populations and the roles that harm reduction services can play in protecting communities. Jodie Albert is a community outreach worker in the Know Your Status Hepatitis C Programme in Atacacoup, a rural First Nation community in Saskatchewan in Canada. The program caters to the needs of the local indigenous community and it provides access to holistic, culturally appropriate care and services led by community members. In her role, Jody also uses her insights as someone with lived experience of hepatitis C. Reina Hedur friedrich Stotier, who goes by the name Heidi. Heidi is a nurse and she has a background in clinical research. She's been responsible for the setup, the management, and the day-to-day operations of Trap Hep C, the treatment as prevention for hepatitis C program, the Icelandic communities hepatitis C elimination program. Aura Roy is the director of the Medzinieres community organization. She holds a degree in criminology and legal justice sociology. Aura is an activist and international advisor on drug policy, providing a feminist perspective. So. I think you can imagine we're in for an interesting session. Jody. I'm going to start with you. I'd love to know from you, when and why were you first tested for hepatitis C?
1: I was tested for hepatitis C in 2004. And the reason I was tested was because I, I lived a high risk lifestyle. And an individual who I used drugs with came into my workplace at the time, telling me that he was just, Newly diagnosed with hepatitis C, so I I kind of knew I had it because I had used his uh, his dirty spoon and water. I had my own needle, but it was uh, I believe it was the water and the spoon that I
0: contracted it from. Did you make a decision straight away to get tested?
1: Yes, I did. Once I was diagnosed, it was a huge blow. I didn't have much information on hepatitis C, and all I ever heard about it was it's a death sentence. You know, you're going to die, and it felt like that because I had no information on it. I pretty much gave up on life after I I was um, diagnosed with hepatitis C.
0: Well, the good news, of course, is things are very different these days. Fourteen years on, and partly as a result of you and all the work that you've been doing. You said you gave up on life, but at one point you made that decision to engage with your local harm reduction service to begin treatment. What made you do that?
1: Well, it was um, like living that high-risk lifestyle and being active in addiction. I I wanted to quit so bad, but I didn't know how. Thankfully, the um, Cree Nations Treatment Haven and Ataka Coop had the opioid replacement program. I was starting to uh, the methadone program and and to me that's harm reduction. Once I was able to quit the drugs, I was able to focus on myself instead of just the uh, the drugs. So so I was on uh, methadone for 4 years before I would uh get approached by one of the health nurses here from the Noyer Status program through the Crenation Treatment Haven. The 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 kindness and the respect and the dignity that she showed me, you know, it it, it just made the the decision to to treat my Hep C all the more better and I guess it was that connection that I felt with the nurse, it really, really helped. Because if she hadn't been so kind and respectful and treated me with dignity, then I don't know if I would have been brave enough to complete the treatment. Please tell me she knows that. Oh, yeah,
2: for sure. All the time. <laughs> Heidi, is that your experience at Trap Hep C? Regarding a nurse and the importance of nurses, absolutely. Yeah. When we have this marginalized population, the people who are actively injecting drugs that are the priority in our treatment program as of now. You really need to have a gentle approach. You have to give yourself the time to build a relationship and build, build a trust. And I think historically, that's what nurses do. You know, they bring the services, well, at least here in Iceland, historically, the nurses went out and went into people's home and taught them about hygiene and, and, you know, brought the services to, To the patients. And that's what we're trying to do here in Iceland with the marginalized population. And I think the nurses are vital in that process, you know, to be able to give that, you know, that non judgmental, that caring attitude. And we spend a lot of time building the relationship with our high-risk population, even before we try to get them on treatment, we just want them to know that we actually do care about their health and that we're here to help. We're not just focusing on eliminating a disease, we're thinking about the individual's health and well-being.
0: Aura, do you think this is a particular problem for women to engage, this this feeling of respect, of self-respect? yeah for sure. like the feeling of
3: feeling safe or the feeling of feeling evaluated and feeling respected is the beginning. If you cannot give or provide some safety, you cannot talk about anything, you cannot um engage with any kind of connection. no, and the first thing is connection and as as you say, it is building trust is the first thing the women that arrive to our places is, are are women that are broke, that uh, they have been mistreated everywhere, they don't have confidence or trust in any of the health services or the social services, then the first thing is to to build this trust and let them feel that they can believe in the place
0: that you are offering. So I know that Medsineras was created only for women as well, as including trans women, of course. Do you think it was really necessary to have an organization specifically for women? Do, do men not feel the same issues? What we could see is that
3: the, most of the harm reduction services here are mostly for men. Like women just represent the 15% and they don't have a gender perspective. Then they are mostly invisible. Their needs are not taken into account, and sometimes there are not safe places for them. Like maybe they have been sleeping in the streets and they had a fight with uh, with one guy that was trying to do something to them that they didn't want, and in the morning they're in the same service and nobody is taking care of, isolate them, to take care of them and to make sure that they have this place of intimacy or, you know, like we have to face the same person in the program that they were afraid during the night. Then, yeah, sometimes
0: it's not the safer place for for them. So how do you support vulnerable groups like the trans community, like sex workers, for instance? We just
3: decided to open a place that we built together together. Uh, we, we don't think that exists a safe place where you are living with multiple vulnerabilities. We are trying to do our best. And what we do is to make sure that when something uh, do not make us feel safe, we can work through it, we can talk about it, and we can build a response all together, like from the mutual support, from the solidarity, and making sure that we are building this community that they didn't have before.
0: Jodi, how would it have felt to you to have something like that in 2004?
1: Oh, wow. I believe it would have made a big difference because I felt so alone. I felt so ashamed that I didn't even want to tell anybody that I had hep C because it was just such... Such discrimination against it, I guess. I wouldn't have felt so scared living in fear all the time that I was going to be passing it on to my loved
0: ones, you know, and it would have been really, really helpful. And how's your life different now knowing you've been cured of hepatitis C?
1: It has changed uh, tremendously. Um, you know, I, I don't feel so stuck. I don't feel so fearful and ashamed, you know, like the, the shame that comes with it. It's like I lived in in secrecy all the time, you know, it's like, Having um, a heavy weight, very, very heavy weight, and once I was cured, it was an incredible feeling. I had to process that because I lived with hepatitis C for for, thir- for for 13 years, and I just got so used to it. It was just like it was so normal, but at the same time it was so heavy, you know, and like my confidence is is unreal. you know, and I see the importance of of education, I see the the real importance of education. And then having that lived experience, I'm I'm able to have better insight with with the people that I work with and had compassion. I guess it's just I don't know. It just it's a, it's an incredible feeling not to to be scared to leave my my toothbrush out, my um my tweezers, my nail clippers. For me, it was like just incredible. For me,
3: biggest surprise was when I saw that the first circle that we did with women and with trans women was the first time that they were. Looking at the eyes of each other because they were so used to be in a place where they were alone, surrounded by people, but they were alone. That was the first time that they could share the experiences between women, like that they see that they were not alone, that they were sharing the same problems and they could build solutions together. was the first time and they were sharing like every day in other places, no?
0: And you do a lot to support the mental well-being of your clients, don't you? How, do, how does that help with harm reduction with those goals you've got? We just try to do the magic
3: behind that sense to make sure that they had all that they needed to build their own uh, solutions. And for us, what this was our harm reduction purpose, like just to make sure that they had the, the basics to build by their
0: own. Heidi, Aura's given a really powerful example of how women there were alone in a big group. Jodie's talked about how she feels so alone. What does Trap Hep C do? What's the program about? What are its goals? Is it looking at the same things? Well, Trap Hep C is, of course, a
2: national elimination program. So we are trying to offer a cure for everyone that has been infected by hepatitis C, whether they are Actively using or not, but we are prioritizing people who are in active drug use in order to, to kind of break the chain of transmission by minimizing the, the, the pool of infections. So we are focusing on this group by doing collaborations with harm reduction. We are doing harm reduction ourselves. But, you know, the, the biggest thing is this collaboration. I mean, we are hospital based and we would never be able to reach the most marginalized and vulnerable population by sitting in our offices at the hospital and expecting them to come into our outpatient clinics. It just doesn't work that way because of the reasons that both Jodi and Aura have mentioned, you know, the internal stigma, the perceived stigma, the sense of shame, and just being scared of what kind of reaction you are going to get from the healthcare system. So we really needed to build strong collaborations with the people already working with the marginalized population you know, the the Red Cross harm reduction units, the the welfare and outreach programs in the municipality, and just, you know, patients, patient coalitions, just everyone that is in contact with the most marginalized, most vulnerable population. So that's how we've done it, building on trust that's already
0: there. You had a big mountain to climb in Iceland. There There has been a real challenge, and particularly, I think a lot of People who use drugs, but they, a lot of people who inject drugs use stimulants as well.
2: So 85% of our, our population, well, over 90% have been infected by IV drug use, have a history of IV drug use. And about a third are currently active. They are actively injecting while they are getting treatment. And 85% use stimulants. Only 15% use opioids. So that means you know the, the opioid substitution treatment as harm reduction, of course, works for for those who use opioids, but most of our patients are, are you know, in mixed use. They use both opioids and
0: stimulants. Is there a particular challenge for harm reduction or indeed a particular potential for hepatitis C transmission in people who are using stimulants as opposed to opioids?
2: Yes. Uh, of course, the transmission is, is primarily through sharing needles and cookers and waters and, you know, paraphernalia for using IV drugs. And when you're using stimulants, the injection pattern is much more frequent. My patients who are using these types of drugs are injecting up to 10 to 12 times. So to be able to provide them with clean instruments in that volume is a big challenge for harm reduction. Of
0: course, more injections, more potential for transmission.
2: And you have to look at you know everything, the syringe, the needle, the water, are they using spoons or disposable cookers? Are they, you know, using antiseptics to clean their skin? And, you are know, just so many possible ways of transmission that you have to think
0: about. Jodie, you talked about the fact that you think you caught hepatitis C because you were using a shared spoon. Is there a, a major problem in your community? Who does it affect most?
1: Well, it does affect our um, substance users. Um... Our harm reduction program, we don't have a short supply of the paraphernalia that we we provide. I guess it's a stigma that is uh, pushing them from... From re- receiving our services, because not everybody is in agreement with the harm reduction services, because we're only enabling them, we're accessing all these things for them to easily use their drugs. To some people, it's not a good thing, and our substance users feel it, and they get treated that way. So I guess it's it's the stigma that's really um, affecting our our users, and uh, the transmission for HCV is uh, is starting to pick up
0: again. And do First Nations people have particular problems trying to access healthcare as well? Yes, we do.
1: Well, it's it's the transportation issues as well. We have um, a transportation program out in the health center, but it's the people that don't have a phone to to call for a ride, or they don't have social media to link to the transportation worker and the surrounding towns in Atakukuba, um A lot of our our people have experienced racism from the healthcare providers. So it um, they don't want to seek help from healthcare providers because of the experiences they they encountered. I guess it's, it's and it's their historical trauma as well, you know, and it, it's just, it's a challenge for,
0: for for most, yes. Of course. So as if the stigma of hep C wasn't bad enough, you then add racism and historical trauma into the mix. And Aura, in your case, the women that you're seeing are Often so traumatized, they're victims of domestic abuse, they're sex workers, or they're members of the trans community. And and so there's double trauma and double stigma there, I suppose, of perception.
3: How do you work? And I remember when I was working also in Vancouver, like uh what Jody was saying, like the historical trauma for me was impressive of the g- indigenous women that were coming to the services there. And when I came back to Barcelona, I was being really aware of how privileged we are because in Barcelona the Catalan government was really successful of being able to implement harm reduction programs and we don't have a lot of political discussion about that. Then uh, we are really lucky that we have consumption rooms, we have access to harm reduction programs like needle exchange programs and when we arrived, we didn't have this problem. Then we we could open a range of services without fear of breaking all these barriers that in some communities they have uh, about harm reduction services. Then to be able to, to open a safe place where we also could include services for, for women that were using was a great opportunity because sometimes when you are in the consumption room and they are just using in this moment, they have their drugs with them and they can just be resting and using is the moment that you can talk about housing, is the moment that you can talk about violence, about toxic relations. Then uh, for them is a moment of intimacy. No? You are not being judgmental. You are just make being sure that they are not hurting themselves, then it's a perfect moment. It's the only moment sometimes in the day that they're gonna be like calm and they're gonna be able to talk about this violence, this trauma and the other problems that are going on in their lives not talking about drugs because at the end the problems is not the drugs. The problems is that, Everything else and the drugs are the way that they are coping with all the traumatic experiences that Jody
0: was talking about. That's really interesting because Jody, you spoke about this idea that not everybody likes the work that you're doing because you're facilitating people using their drugs safely, but using their drugs. Aura, you're saying that actually the way out is to give them a way to use their drugs safely. For us, was the only way is, is how you
3: take away the drugs in real. If you always are saying, okay, you cannot do this workshop because you are using drugs. You cannot go to a shelter because you are using drugs. You're never going to be able to begin to put things on on their place. Like you always going to be like, okay, I cannot do that because I am using drugs. And sometimes the response or the, how I, I begin to be, to heal myself is not beginning to the drugs. I begin to have a house and it's then when I can begin to think about giving up drugs. Like if I have to sleep in the streets, I have to be aware, uh, awake all night because I am afraid of being attacked or being raped. And I'm going to use drugs to- just to make sure that I'm going to be all night awake. If I don't have any place to rest, I don't going to be able to give up using drugs. I need the drugs just to make sure that I am safe in the streets, for example. And it's this complexity, this intersectionality that we cannot put on the side.
0: So... Well, obviously, people with hep C do not all use drugs by any means. What you're really saying there is you solve the other issues, they can get away from the drugs, you solve the drugs, then they can get cured of hepatitis C and maybe not get it again. But Heidi, can you describe how treatment as prevention works, particularly for people who inject drugs?
2: Yeah, I kind of want to elaborate on what what Aura just just said, because it's really important when you're trying to use treatment as prevention, as we are doing, what we are trying to do is to treat people who are infected, regardless of if they're using drugs actively or not, to try to, you know, minimize the pool of, infection and kind of break this chain of of transmission. But what you really have to remember is that the people who are in the situation that Aura was talking about, they have so much else, so so many other things going on in their life that take precedence over their hepatitis C infection. And you have to be really mindful of that. You know, where are they going to sleep? Where I'm going to get my next meal? Where I'm going to to get my next fix of drugs? You know, am I going to be safe tonight? So you kind of have to work through these issues and try to get them to a place where they can trust you and then talk about, you know, would you like to get treatment for hepatitis C? So you kind of have to put things in perspective. And this was a learning curve for us in the Trap Hep C program, because we were so excited about the possibility of being able to offer treatment to everyone, you know, being able to offer this cure that we could cure everyone of hepatitis C. We just expected everyone to be so grateful and, and, and so excited to get rid of this disease. But this disease doesn't really give these individuals any
0: symptoms or any urgency to get rid of it because they have so many other problems. And yet, of course, the problem is they are having symptoms. We hear this repeatedly on these podcasts, but they don't realize because they're using, they feel tired, the symptoms are vague, they feel exhausted.
1: I had to be ready in order to receive the treatment. You know, like I... my life had drastically changed. I I was um, no longer homeless. Um, I had my children back. Um, I had a job. You know, I was able to care for all those basic necessities, those basic needs. And then once I was able to not worry about all those things, I was able to focus on myself. So it was like I had to be ready in order to receive the treatment. And I've been, I, fin- I started in... 2017 and I completed 2017 of September. So the the thing that I I struggle with is is being okay with working with them, making that connection with them, but being okay and accepting that they're not willing to take the treatment. You know, as much as I try to make that connection with them, it's hard to accept that they're not ready, you know, and that we are going to lose lose people because they're not ready and then their their livers are going to fail and cirrhosis and liver cancer you know and that's where i struggle is is having to accept that that they're they're not ready and they don't
2: want the treatment. Yeah, in Iceland we experience this a lot and there are individuals in my program that i've been following since 2016 regularly in contact knowing that they're still using possibly transmitting and you just you can't give up but you have to be really conscious about not pressuring too much. We use social media a lot um, and, you know, and mobile phones and, and these kinds of communication tactics, Facebook and so on, just to keep in contact in a very gentle manner, just to let them know that we're here for them when they're ready. And in my experience, and I, we, we just got a, a patient in, you know, that I've been following since 2016. Finally, she was ready because due to covid she finally got housing there she feels secure in a new housing option that were was, you know, developed for women due to COVID. And then she was ready. But if we would have pressured her, I'm pretty sure that we she would have discontinued possibly multiple times. Yeah, you have to be really mindful of that and not pressure too much. But we also, of course, sometimes if we're really worried about transmission, we want to get people on treatment as fast as possible. And they do discontinue or stop treatment. And then we approach them with just multiple tries. You just try again, try again,
0: try again, as many times as you need. But to, to do that, to get to the stage of having treatment, of course, you need to know your status. And Jody, I know that you work with the uh, Ataka Coop First Nation Know Your Status program. Can you can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: I started off at the health center as a co-high uh, Slash janitor. This is the same place I was treated for my Hep C, so so the nurses knew who I was and they knew my 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 background, my lived experiences, and I was working this and that um, job for maybe about six months, and then I was approached by the nurses to they asked me if I was willing to do the outreach worker for Know Your Status, and I agreed and was super excited because that's that's something I've always
0: wanted to do. I've always wanted to work in this field and to help people, I guess. What services does Know Your Status provide? How, how do you integrate those services? How do you link clients to treatment?
1: The services provided are um, driving clients to doctor's appointments. We provide rides to and from the health center whenever, it, if it's Know Your Status related, mobile blood draws, monthly phone cards and hygiene packs. We give good food boxes for when they come in for blood work. And then we just we just make that connection. We. We try to make that connection. Um, the services that we try to integrate into linking them to treatment are um, hosting liver health events. Those are um, really important. That's how we we find our, our um, newly diagnosed or, or reinfections is uh, through our liver health events. We use really good food, <laughs> gift cards, and and door prizes to bring people in. That is a really big thing around here, but it's it stopped since COVID. Our needle distribution, um, our Harvest Coffee Shop that's uh, breakfast and coffee served every Monday mornings we provide information there and then we make that connection um I transport them to NA meetings I engage them in needle sweeps engage them to share their lived experiences whenever we have community events it's it's doing those things that we can when we make that connection it's it's having to find a way that we can connect with them and we we tried all these these ways and and that's how we were able to uh Talk about the know your status program. So, so that's 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 what we do. For us, has been
3: really, really important, no? that the, because it's okay. We can do the test in our site, and it's amazing because there uh, we can do this first accompaniment just to make sure that they go for treatment. But they have to engage in other services for treatment. When you are uh, women who use drugs, sex work, uh, they look at you like is where all these different stigmas plays together and they feel rejected and after that they don't engage to a service. It's really important to work uh, towards this awareness about other health providers that maybe are, are not really familiar with harm reduction services, just to make sure that they uh, are aware or how this The people can feel when they feel rejected and when they feel judged. And we can do a lot of work from the harm reduction services, but sometimes we have to to go with the women, go for the treatment together, and just to make sure that they are treated well and respected in the services where they can have the treatment.
0: And our Tell me a little bit, because you've worked, of course, in Canada, and Colombia, now in Barcelona, Catalonia, you've, you've been around. Can you tell me how your experiences at Mezineras compared to, say, the harm reduction model in South America? Wow.
3: <laughs> so in South America, we didn't have anything for injection or in the injector drug users. We opened the first uh, needle access program there, and we were the first one that were giving uh some kind of access to harm reduction. Then our our step was just to give clean needles uh, and paraphernalia. Then it was totally different uh, experience because we didn't talk too much about EPSI. We were beginning to talk about don't destroy your veins, uh, make sure that you have clean needles. And of course, we were talking about HIV and EPSI, but at the beginning, we just make visible the program just to make possible to be able to speak with, with the people that were using about services was just an amazing experience because they were not aware of anything like
0: harm reduction exist before. Heidi, we've heard some extraordinary examples of, of problems, but uh, despite all the challenges you faced, um, the Trap Hep C program has made an extraordinary difference. What is the hep C situation in Iceland now? How close are you to that WHO goal to eliminate hep C as a major public health threat by
2: 2030? Well, we, the WHO set forth those elimination goals about reducing incidence by 80% by 2030. But they also set forth to reach that that you needed to uh, diagnose 90% and treat 80% and we've reached those goals. The service coverage targets have been reached. So we have diagnosed more than 90% of our population, and we have treated over 80%. But whether that will translate into uh, reaching the elimination goals, we haven't seen that yet. We need more time. We are still seeing new infections. We are seeing reinfections. And that maybe ties a little bit Back to what Aura was saying about, you know, engagement in care when you've worked with someone out in the outreach and harm reduction setting, and you have to link them to care within the, the hospital setting or, or the treatment setting, and they, you know, perceive this stigma and, and are not treated well. So, what we've been trying to do in the trapepsy to kind of counteract this and, and reach those few patients that can transmit so widely is to simplify the treatment even more so what we do when we have patients that are very vulnerable is we ask the harm reductionist the social worker the, the worker in the the housing setting or in the prison system that they give the treatment through us so we kind of you know control it remotely some patients we never see we work completely through the 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 workers that have built the trust. I think that's something that's really, really important that you are able to do it outside of the hospital setting and outside of the kind of the specialist
0: setting. That's an extraordinary example of collaboration with other stakeholders and services. Do you think that's the secret of your success?
2: Absolutely. I don't think we would have been able to reach as far into this population as we have without collaborating with those that are working the closest to the marginalized vulnerable population. I think it would have been impossible. And you really need to take out all unnecessary steps. We have completely changed the progression of the disease in Iceland. We are not seeing patients that have had active chronic Hepatitis C for years and years and years. It's newly contracted, so we know it hasn't done a lot of damage to the liver. So we omit unnecessary blood draws, and we omit the fibro scan, and we omit, you know, unnecessary clinic visits. They don't necessarily have to see us; they just have to see someone they trust and take the medication and come in to confirm that they are cured. And we can do that through the the, the workers in in
0: the field as well, Jody. You were nodding away there.
1: That's it's just really incredible. Um, do you, the, the workers that you use, are, are any of them like lived experience or are they all like social workers and nurses?
2: Yes, we do. We haven't been able to, to create like a peer program in Iceland. I think it's because we're such a small nation. When we talk about trauma, trauma happens within the group as well. So I think that might make it a little bit more Difficult, people have shared difficult experiences, possibly. You know, we don't have that distance between because, you know, it's it's a small community. So we don't have a lot of, of peer workers in Iceland, but we have a lot of dedicated volunteers working in harm reduction. And in the last few years, we've seen a great increase in nurses coming to work, uh, for instance, in the municipality that, uh, you know, are running the housing first project and, and, the, you know, the outreach centers and the shelters. And that's made a huge difference to be able to have nurses that can do the blood draws, that can explain the process, that can explain the effects on, on their health, you know, explain the medication, what the treatment entails. And, you know, just to get over this, you know, feeling of having, having to control everything ourselves and, you know, not trusting our patients to take a month's worth of medication and trusting that they will take them, because they will, they will take the medication. They care about their health. So when you kind of get over that, that you have to be in constant contact yourself and you go through people that they trust, their, their results are better. See, our,
1: our liver health events, we put them through the, the screening, the POG testing, and then the fibro scan and the blood work. So, and we, we lose a lot of people, hey, because
2: they don't want to go through all these steps. Every extra step that you have to take, it just makes things more difficult. So, when you can ask the nurses to do the blood draw and just drop it off at the lab, that makes it much more easy. A world of reason, you know, just reflex and just this reflex
0: testing makes a world of difference. Jodi, can you tell me what progress your country's made in achieving those WHO? Goals of eliminating Hep C as a major public health threat by 2030.
1: We're trying our best, and um, before COVID hit, we had a, a good team, and then there had to be layoffs. So we've we've had uh, some reinfections and a new diagnoses. So so um, at the moment, COVID is is really stopping a lot of our uh, our services, and I can't say it's 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 the result of these new diagnoses and reinfections, but it it sure um, plays a factor in
0: in what we're limited to do. It's a challenge, isn't it? I mean, I think we've heard on the one hand, Heidi, you said you'd got someone you've been working with since 2016 and she finally took that step to get treatment because, because of COVID. She now had somewhere to live. So there are there are pros and cons. How has COVID affected your services? We've heard from you, Jody, but what about you, Ara?
3: For us, has been like a challenge, for sure. But in Medineras we m- incremented all services because most of the services for people who use drugs uh, had more restrictions. They couldn't go to other services for food. But uh, on the other hand, for the first time, we had a shelter for people who use drugs that includes harm reduction services in the city. Then it was amazing because... For people that didn't have a house for years, now they have a shelter, which has been amazing to improve their mental health, their physical health, their emotional health. And it has a, a, an incredible impact of the continuation of the treatment and to engaging with treatment. No? If you have a place to stay that also has nurses inside, it's amazing because you can get treatment in the site. Then And it's easier to engage with other services also. And at the same time, I have to say that the Catalan government has been really invested on ending EPSI. Then they have been supporting all the small services like us to be able to implement uh, harm reduction services during covid What we saw is that has been like really difficult with the confinement for women, especially for sex workers or uh, women doing survival sex, that they have been not able to work. And people who was asking money in the streets, they couldn't ask for money anymore because nobody was in the streets. At the same time, the services that were not just focused on people who use drugs, were serving a lot of new population, like for food, for example. You began to have a lot of families that were not used to go to the social services asking for help, and now they are going there. Or a lot of people who couldn't pay their rents anymore, they have to go for housing. Then people who use drugs that are the most marginalized, they become to be the last in the line because they are the less stable, the more difficult to handle, and all the stigma that goes with that. No, then, then in that sense it has it more difficult for the population. But for us as harm reductionists, we had a chance to develop some services that we
0: never imagined that could be possible. Heidi, do you think that harm reduction services could support movement of hepatitis C care into the community more widely?
2: Absolutely, I think so. Uh, you need to, of course,
0: decentralise and
2: and you know make it possible for for harm reduction to do both test and treat. And I don't know what the regulations or, or, you know, the stipulations are in in each country. But uh, I think what we've done here should be possible everywhere else. We're not doing anything particularly special. You know, we do, you know, assess each patient. Uh, We do prescribe the medication. We keep in contact with those, you know, giving the treatment. So we still, you know oversee, go over blood tests to confirm cure and, and you know disseminate information and so on. But I think if you're going to reach elimination, if you're going to reach the population that is the most vulnerable and maybe the most vulnerable to transmitting and, and getting infected, you have to go through the people that they trust. And that's usually the harm reduction services.
0: So trust is a key word that's come up time and time again trust and dignity. I'm going to ask each of you for just a couple of key learnings from your experience working in viral hepatitis that other people could take forward in their elimination efforts. I'm going to start with you, Ara. If you could get other people to do two things that you're doing now, what would they be?
3: Just to make sure that they are there when the people is ready and at the same time make sure that they're going to feel safe when they go for treatment and they're going to feel supported if they don't feel that they have been treated okay. Because if they are not alone in in that moment, they can try again with other people or they can try again in other place to have treatment. But if they feel alone and they don't feel understood in that moment, maybe they don't try again.
0: Judy, what about you? Two key points you love other people to take on board.
1: Have some understanding. Try and understand where they're coming from and what led them to be where they are and, and to meet them where they're at is really vital as well. Because if you're going to be um, expecting too much from them, you're going to be pushing them away. Or if you're not engaging enough, then you're going to lose them. So it, it's meeting them
2: where they're at and then going from there.
0: Gosh, inspiring words. Heidi, what about you? Uh,
2: I would think that collaboration—you know—it's uh, kind of what Jody said, meeting them where they're at. But where they at might change over time. So to make sure if if uh, they need treatment that they can access it where they are at the time, and also if that changes. What happens very often in treatment for hepatitis C or just about maybe any disease is that there are a lot of people working towards a common goal, but they're working each in their own corner. So you may have addiction medicine, you may have, you know, hepatology or, or infectious diseases, and you have harm reductions, and they all have this patient in common, but they're not working together. So what I think we can learn, for instance, from our program is if you set up the program so that it's seamless between all these stakeholders, and of course, don't forget the prison system. So if someone starts treatment, even if they're in addiction treatment and they go out of it, that maybe harm reduction can help keep them on treatment. Or if they go into prison, they can keep, keep on with their treatment there. So I think collaboration is absolutely key. And then you have to remember to be patient, to be flexible and very, very forgiving so that people can build trust and you get kind of a good reputation within the community that you're not your mental, that people get second, third, fourth, fifth chances and
0: that they're always welcome into your care. Wise words indeed, ladies. Let's hope some of our listeners are in the position where they too are working to reduce harm and towards that WH goal of reducing the impact of Hepatitis C. And indeed, towards, who knows, maybe doing what Iceland has done, achieving that first step of the WH goal to eliminate Hepatitis C as a major public health threat by 2030. Thank you so much, Heidi, Aura, Jodi, for sharing your knowledge, your expertise on the role that prevention can play. In our journey into hep C elimination, your work is extraordinary, commendable, just inspiring. And clearly, it's making a huge difference to the lives of patients as well as those elimination targets. But of course, in addition, thank you to our audience for listening. Do tune in to our next episode as we continue to learn from those working on the front line of elimination efforts and gain insight into their, oh, so powerful stories and their contributions in the fight against Hepatitis C. If you haven't already, search The Hepcast to subscribe.
1: The Hepcast is a collaboration between the World Hepatitis Alliance and Gilead Sciences Europe Limited. The Hepcast is fully funded by Gilead
0: Sciences Europe Limited.